Good morning. As you all know, next week is our annual Remembrance Sunday, a time when we as a congregation gather together, this year virtually, to create space to honor the experience of grief. We share photographs and memories, we tell stories, and we breathe together into all of the difficult emotions that come after the experience of death. I have always been really proud to be part of a community that so directly speaks to and honors that experience, not only as something that will inevitably happen to all of us, but as something that, if we're brave enough, we can actually embrace as something that has meaning and purpose and transformative ability. Obviously, within our own lives, we'll definitely be transforming when we die. But I think that if we're brave enough to face everything that comes from grief, we can also be transformed by the experiences of death of those that we love. I don't think that we, we, do a particularly good job of that as humans, especially in this country. We don't have holidays or keep up altars year-round to celebrate and honor the people who have passed. We tend to fear death and really avoid it at all costs, trying to stay perpetually young. And most of all, we don't really talk about it. We barely even get a day off of work to go to a funeral. And we don't make space for it in our lives. We know, here at Wellsprings, because we do make space for it, that it is an important and valuable experience. One of the things that I myself am guilty of in terms of not talking about is my father. This is him. This is my altar. I can show you a little bit more closely. His name was Andrew Fox, and he died just a couple months shy of his 38th birthday. There are three stories about him. One that I don't like to tell, but I'm going to. One that I really like to tell, or at least to remember, and one that I don't know. story that I don't like to tell is that he struggled on and off with heroin addiction for the better part of 20 years before ultimately taking his life. It's short, perfunctory, doesn't leave a whole lot of questions, makes sense, right? But it says absolutely nothing about the man that he was. And I don't like to tell it because he needs a couple more statistics on addiction and suicide. We already know. The story that I really like to tell is a memory that took place when I was 10 years old. He was in 8th grade and I was in 5th. And our social studies teachers had arranged it so that we would all be studying the same subject at the same time. And the subject that we were studying was the song, We Didn't Start the Fire, 
by Billy Joel. I'm sure you all know the song, and you've probably even heard it a few times this year, or at least the parody that's been going around this year, The Dumpster Fire. Very funny, very appropriate for this year. We Didn't Start the Fire is a bullet list of historical events, thus social studies, with a chorus in between. And one afternoon, we both had our pieces of paper with all of the lyrics and the chorus written in. And for reasons that I can't remember, and probably never will, we decided that we were going to sing it together. We went out into our driveway while my parents were out. He stood in the middle, and I rode circles around him on my bike. And he sang out the lyrics from his little piece of paper that he held in his hand. And every time it came time for the chorus, I would sing, we didn't start the fire. It was a really nice memory. And I like to tell that story because it seems like something that a brother and sister who love each other would do. I like to tell that story because I like to think that in that moment we loved each other. The story that I don't know is the story of who he actually was. We were never all that close growing up. And unfortunately, his addiction started to take hold when he was still in high school. And I was still pretty young myself. And because of his addiction and his illnesses and his depression and all of the constant fighting with my parents, I was never able to really get in touch with him. We would see each other at Christmas or maybe a birthday here and there, but, you know, once college hit for me, he wasn't really in my life anymore. And unfortunately, by the time he died, we had been estranged for more than a year. As is often the case for individuals who complete suicide, he had also had a falling out with my parents. I am sure that he did not feel like he had any other option. I really wish that I could have known him, and I will be forever changed because of his death. Probably noticed what I'm talking about today is that subsection of death which people talk about even less, which is suicide, deliberately taking one's own life. Now this is a huge and complicated subject, one that we could do an entire message series on, but that's not what this message series is. This message series, The Cloud Over Everything, is about death and grief. And the experiences that we all share, whether or not we'd like to talk about it. And as I said earlier, I've always valued that we do talk about it here. But I'm not as smart as my words sometimes. And when my brother died, I didn't talk about it. I barely even told anyone, and if I did, I would tell them my brother died. End of sentence. No other information. 
the only people who heard even one ounce of the emotions that I was experiencing when it happened were my boyfriend and Reverend Ken. <laughs> and although they both did a great job of holding space and simply breathing with me and just letting me be all of the things that I was, I didn't really feel like I had the right to grieve the way that one normally does. Because we had been estranged. Because we had never been that close. Because, you know, we were related, but we were never really friends during that moment in the driveway. And I didn't really think that it was my grief to experience or to share. My parents, of course, they'll never be the same. But me, I just went on about my life. It probably sounds funny to some of you, knowing that I'm a mental health counselor. <laughs> I literally talk to people professionally. <laughs> and I very deliberately and specifically speak to people about suicide <laughs> professionally. <laughs> and yet, I didn't make space for it in my own life. I didn't talk about it to anybody. And I just went on about my days basically as if nothing had happened. And as seemingly happens to a lot of people after someone that they love dies from suicide, I one day found myself thinking about the same thing. He died in January of 2017 and in July maybe June I was out for a run one day like I did very frequently back then less so since the pandemic and I found myself thinking the way that one normally does while one is running <laughs> running through to-do list items trying to think if I remembered to return that email to that person thinking about dinner plans and thinking in a very logical and constructive way about how I would go about taking my own life. It came on the way that those thoughts do, right? Like you don't really hold on to them, they're just there and then they're replaced by something else as you're running or biking or doing any one of those repetitive physical activities where your mind just sort of wanders like that. And I found myself just sort of mentally listing off the steps of what would need to take place you know, first kind of withdrawing from my significant relationships so that I wouldn't hurt those people too much, and then having to figure out what I would do with my remains, because obviously I couldn't have anybody find them, and, and I found myself sort of realizing what I was thinking, and being horrified, as one tends to be when that kind of comes on suddenly, and finally, after all of those months realizing, oh... I'm in trouble. I don't know how to deal with any of this. I am a mess. And it took me a long time to dig myself out of that hole. And as you can tell, I did because I'm here. And in some ways I've sort of made it my life purpose to try to prevent suicide in other people. Again, that's what I do professionally. I talk about it every day. But for myself, it took 
a lot of really painful work, like it always does. I had to speak. I had to share. I had to talk about all of the things that I was feeling that I struggled to put words to and all of the thoughts that I was thinking that didn't necessarily make sense to me and all of the millions of unanswerable questions that were left over with me after my brother's death. She left out over with everyone after someone that they love chooses to take their life. I know I'm not alone in this. I know that many of you have had personal contact with suicide. You may have had someone you love who has unfortunately ultimately completed. I know even just last year in our relatively small community, a whole lot of us lost individuals that we loved when a series of students at Downingtown East High School chose to take their lives all in sequence. All of those lives were changed forever because that's what happens. I don't have any easy answers because there are none. And I don't have any words of advice or encouragement to help all of us who are trying to hold the space for this ocean of sadness that comes after this type of a loss. But I've realized for myself, for the people that I care about who were able to hold the space for me, and for all of the clients that I try to hold space for on a daily basis, that that's not actually what is needed. What is needed is one of the things that is the most honest and core of all the things that we do in Wellspring. What is needed is simply to breathe. People who have come back from that dark space, such as myself, have reported countless occasions during which someone that they loved and cared about was brave enough to listen and to simply breathe. Not offer any words of advice, any encouragement, any platitudes of it will get better, but to simply hold space for that experience of grief. That's what brought me back from that really dark place and what allowed me to start sharing my grief. Finally kind of coming full circle where I'm sharing it with all of you and making my own virtual altar in preparation for next week. But it works the same for all of us humans. As many of you know, those of you who are on social media, seems to be everybody in the world except for me. <laughs> Last month uh, was Suicide Awareness Day, and this past weekend was Worldwide Mental Health Awareness Day. Both of these uh, serve to try to create a conversation around these things which are not often talked about. So, kind of doing my part as a mental health practitioner by sharing and talking about these things. There are countless organizations that are devoted towards preventing suicide. I'm sure you know many of them and maybe even have contact and have done advocacy for some of them. One of my favorites is an organization called 
to write love on her arm. And for Worldwide Mental Health Awareness Day, they asked some of their advocates all around the world to share some of their experiences, both personally and in terms of sharing. What helps? In terms of awareness, in terms of speaking about this thing that is so incredibly difficult, in terms of allowing for all of this pain that is not easily solved and that you can't make go away, what works? And funnily enough, regardless of where they were in the world and what culture they came from and how different those cultures may be, which they are, they all said the same thing. Connection. Once again, like so many of those really huge lessons that we try to make space for spiritually, it's all about the power of love. And I don't mean that in terms of having people in your life who love you, because we all do, even when we don't realize it, even when we feel alone. But I mean the experience of love, of simply holding someone's hand while they're crying, or physically comforting someone with a hug when they don't know what else to say or simply breathing with someone while they are shaking in pain and anger and unavoidable anguish over all of the difficult things that we still struggle to talk about in this world. It's connection. It's just being there. And there were a lot of words from a lot of different people, a man in Wales, a therapist in Melbourne, Australia, someone from Germany, a girl from Canada, someone here in the United States. But interestingly enough, the words that spoke to me the most were from a woman in India. Her name is Kartika Lagwal. I don't know her. <laughs> I've never met her. I haven't seen pictures of her, so I don't know how old she is or what her individual experience has been, but I know that she works with this organization because she, like everyone else, has had personal contact with suicide in some way. And she says, there's so much space for shame to grow in conversations that don't acknowledge the vulnerability that accompanies the human experience. And shame can silently cripple the spirit. We have to raise our voices loud enough to silence shame. We must strive to be more empathetic because shame cannot thrive where empathy lives. And we can only do this by inviting each other into our stories. That's what I've done with you guys today. And that is what I hope so desperately that all of us can be brave enough to do for yourself and for your pain and your difficult emotions and thoughts for the people whom you love who undoubtedly struggle the same way that you do because the thing about suicide is it's kind of a universal human experience 
all of us are here simply because each day we choose to be. And there's no way to ever make that go away. And yes, I have devoted my life towards trying to prevent suicide. But it is a part of our experience. And we have to be able to talk about it. I pray that all of you can hold the space for yourselves. If you yourself are someone who is struggling, I encourage you to reach out to Reverend Lee. She's a pretty good space holder. And I promise you, even if you think no one can understand, we're a lot more similar than we are different. And none of us are actually alone. And for all of you who have been personally touched as I have, and who live with the unanswerable questions every day, I pray that you hold the space for your own experience and are brave enough to talk about it. I'm going to leave you all today with some words from that same organization that I talked about to write well on her arms. It's a little piece of paper that is normally tucked into the back of my phone, which I'm currently using to record this. And it's a little bit weathered around the edges because it's in there every single day, <laughs> tucked behind the plastic. And it says, tomorrow needs you. This world is better because you're in it. It needs your smile and your laughter, your honesty and your heartbreak, your hurdles and your triumphs. It needs everything you are and everything you will be. The world needs you. Your friends and family need you. Tomorrow needs you. I would ask you all to join me for a moment in doing that practice, which is so core to what we do here at Wellsprings. Close your eyes and breathe. For all of the memories and emotions and unanswerable questions that may have arisen within you as you have listened to this today, we welcome you. For all of the pain and anger and hopelessness that we all have the capacity to feel, we welcome you. For all of the endless love that silently and invisibly connects every single one of us and that cannot be destroyed by death or time or distance. We welcome you. We make space for everything that we are, everything we will be, and everything that has already come to make us who we are. We welcome it all. <laughs>